0: Hello and welcome to Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for two years now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In the days before the virus, we'd visit our guests in their studios or workshops, but for now we're making do with the internet instead. Today I'm delighted to talk to Yinka Ilori. The designer started his practice from his parents' back garden in 2011. After receiving a £3,000 loan from the Prince's Trust, he made his name initially by creating a string of chairs that were notable for their strong use of colour that came from his Nigerian heritage and a profound sense of narrative. The pieces were often based on stories of old school friends and parables his parents told him as a child. However, after creating his eponymous studio in 2017, the scale of his work started to change. Happy Street is a permanent installation in a Battersea underpass, for instance, while the Colour Palace, a timber pavilion inspired by markets in Lagos, was installed in the grounds of the Dulwich Picture Gallery in 2019. More recently, his public art installation at London's Blackfriars in support of the NHS bought joy at a moment when it was desperately needed. Written in bright pink letters, it said simply, Better days are coming, I promise. According to architect Sir David Adjaye, he is a designer with an artist's sensibility. He's looking at the world through a very particular lens, adding for good measure that his furniture transcends just function and product and acts as a device for cultural memory. Yinka was awarded an MBE in last month's New Year's Honours list. Yinka, are you there? I'm here.
1: Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Was it all right? It's great. It's Lovely. Thank you. Reasonably,
0: reasonably accurate. That's great. Good. You've had quite a lockdown. You've launched a new homeware collection, did an installation at Blackfriars in Southwark, which we just discussed. There were windows at Selfridges, a project at Quadrat, the Danish textiles company. You found yourself part of a new design movement, New London Fabulous, and, big and, you've been awarded an MBE in the New Year's Honours list to boot. It looks like you've been incredibly busy, but how has lockdown been? Has it been difficult?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's been a tough lockdown. I think, you know, we were all faced with, you know, a, a situation that we weren't, you know, prepared for or we didn't have to deal with. Because, you know, this is the first time we've ever kind of had a pandemic. So I think, you know, when we were hit with, you know, lockdown measures last year in March, it was near my birthday, which is in April. I had high hopes, you know, for my birthday and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to celebrate it. (laughs) So when I spent April at home, (laughs) I was like, what the hell am I going to do? We had lots of projects on in the studio that we were potentially working on, you know, from like public commissions to private and just, yeah, lots of, you know, exciting things that were put on hold and either... The company went into liquidation, so we didn't even get paid for those, some of those projects. So that's when I decided to sort of launch the Homeware Collection during lockdown.
0: Interesting. So the Homeware came directly from the pandemic. This wasn't a long-term plan, in other words?
1: No way at all. You know, we have families and we have, you know, a team. You, you pay their salaries and that kind of thing. you got to keep going. So I think I just thought, what can I do to kind of keep my studio going and keep busy? And it started off actually just me designing a pair of socks, which I put on my Instagram and it got like <laughs> 3000 likes. And I was like, this is insane. A pair of socks, you know, such a basic object, but you know, it's, it's somehow brought joy to everyone's lives because we're all at home going through the same thing. And then that's how I started doing the homeware collection. It was by accident. Out of you know fear and I don't know frustration and just not knowing what's going to happen.
0: I'm quite intrigued that you decided to make it yourself rather than go to an established manufacturer.
1: Why was that? I wanted to kind of have you know that sort of sense of control and ownership of my work and of my studio. And I think you know it was something I hadn't done before. I wanted to sort of be involved in every process from the you know the sort of product development, the materials development, and the quality. Talking directly to the, you know to the manufacturers, which was for me was a huge learning curve and you know an amazing experience. I mean, I couldn't travel to these places like Nepal and Portugal to go and speak to these people. But we did it over Zoom. Okay. The quality was incredible.
0: So what are you getting made where, Yinka?
1: Sure, yeah. So, you know, we produced a a kind of a full homeware collection that consists of tyrants and rugs that are handmade in Nepal. We produced stoneware bowls and plates that are made in Portugal. We produced enamel mugs produced in Poland. Um, The socks were produced in the UK. The uh, trays were produced in Belgium. So a mixture of sort of, you know, they're all kind of produced in Europe which has been pretty, I mean, good, but with Brexit now, it's caused lots of uh, uh, confusions and stresses with customers.
0: Yeah, well, that's quite interesting. Can we unpick that briefly? What kind of stresses has it caused?
1: What, what's causing the stress for me is, is the taxes that customers are faced with, you know, so if they're going to order something from me, that's if it's over 150 quid, you pay some percent, some tax, I mean, and the tax bill that they get is kind of, they don't get a warning, there's no kind of pre-heads up on what the tax bill is going to be. So they hit with, let's say, a 40 mm. euro tax bill because they've ordered something from me. So that's it kind of off puts my customers for ordering things for me because it's going to cost more, probably more than the products. If you order a pair of socks, you might pay some tax on that. It's just a bit annoying, you know, we're trying to find a way to how we can navigate through that. And, you know, I don't know, work through it, but it's, it's pretty yeah. tough.
0: And will you keep going with this after the pandemic? I mean, if the pandemic ever comes to a conclusion, obviously.
1: I know, I know. I'm, I'm hearing it could take two years before we can actually get mm. over this pandemic like worldwide. And that kind of did freak me out, thinking two years of, of this. But, you know, for me, like this homeware brought me, you know, a, a tremendous amount of joy you know, over the last nearly know, six, seven months of doing it. But what I will say too is that, you know, it's extremely tough, you know, doing a homeware collection during a pandemic. I think launching any business is really tough during a pandemic. But... I've loved it so much. And it, you know, and it's done extremely well, you know, press-wise. We're launching Selfridges, launching in Matches, launching in Browns. We're talking to retailers in the US. Like, we've done incredible things just in a short amount of time. So, yeah, we're talking about launching Phase 2 um, in the summer. Ooh.
0: Can you tell us what Phase 2 might entail?
1: Sure, yeah. So Phase 2 might entail furniture some chairs that i might do sort of do like a mid edition run of chairs which will be the first time i'm actually doing furniture that you can buy Mm. in sets of eight which i think you know we'll hopefully will go down well we're doing like some throws maybe some sofas potentially more rugs um we're doing some maybe some candles some candle holders so yeah we're really going to really extend the line and, and really push this is going to be a bit more different from the first collection.
0: Yeah, yeah. And who is your market? Is this stuff affordable, Yinka? I think it is
1: affordable. Yeah, I mean, we we did you know an extension amount of research looking at our potential competitors and sort of seeing who's selling what for what price and what kind of quality are they offering. I mean, I do think you know we sell stoneware bowls for 115 pounds. You know, plates for 38 pounds socks 38 pounds i think for me i, I based it on the quality and i think the quality for me was one of the things i really cared about because i put myself in a position of a customer if i'm going to spend you know 115 pounds on a stoneware bowl i expect it to be the best quality i feel comfortable retailing my work at that price knowing mean, they're going to get the best to me and get you know an not just swear that they you know that will be in a home for years to come that they can pass on and that's what i'm trying to you know, try to push, you know, with this hardware collection.
0: I mean, sourcing your craft makers or your manufacturers must have been incredibly difficult to to know about the quality if you're just looking via Zoom, I guess.
1: It was very hard, yes. And I think sometimes over email, things can get lost in translation. There's been times where we've had nearly, like, near arguments with, you know, with potential kind of producers because it's been a kind of, you know, wrong um, miscommunication over email, over Zoom. So I think having the Zoom... Um, has been really helpful because I can understand what it is they're trying to sell, what quality they can offer over. They might show me a plate or a rug and I'm like, okay, that looks good. But with saying that, what's been really tough is that you, know, you can't go and travel to these places to see or feel because an image might look really good online or you know, on video, but in reality... When you get it, it looks like a load of shit, you know? Um, <laughs> but what was good was that they sent us the samples. We all got samples from all the producers. Right. So having samples come into the office, we got a nice feel and idea of, you know, what kind of quality they're offering.
0: Very good. And should we talk about the MBE? Yes. Nice surprise, yeah. presumably. Mm. How does that work? You get a letter, but then presumably you can't tell anybody for months, right?
1: Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, because, you know, I'm so tight with my family and friends as well. So we're very open, open family. So I got the email, actually. This is, this is actually a true story. I got an email from, you know, your Royal Highness. So I can't remember what the email said anyway. It was someone from the House of Parliament anyway. <laughs> they said, oh, is this Yinka speaking? Uh, you know, I said, like, yeah, this is me. Um, and then they said to me, can you confirm this to you? I was like, yeah, to confirm it, this is my email. It's my personal email. So then I called up to say, what's up? Have I done something wrong? Have I not paid my taxes? I was, I was like, what have I done? Because <laughs> you get this email and you're like, this is weird because, you know, they're not responding to you. They're taking about a week to get back to you. You know, am I in trouble? So I called up and said, Oh, you know what's happening? They said, Oh, don't worry, you know, you're fine, you know, it's it's good news. Don't panic. Um, someone will be in touch with you in the next few weeks. And I got the email and I was like, Bloody hell, and M- an MBE. This is this is this is insane. This can't be true. And they said, Yeah, you can't tell no one, you've got to keep it confidential for until the day it gets announced. I think on the 31st of December is when they announced mm. it or 1st of Jan. Mm. That was the moment I told my mum and dad and told everyone, you're all my loved ones and stuff, and yeah, it was quite a Emotional moment I think especially for my family as well. Just because of kind of you know, no one expects their child to get an MBE. Yeah. So it's quite a special moment for me and for the family.
0: Yeah, my dad got one and it is a special moment actually. It's a genuinely joyful moment. When do you get to pick it up? I don't know, you know, because it's (laughs) COVID
1: is just yeah, yeah. yeah, killing things. But hopefully I get to go to, you know, Buckingham Palace and and and, you know and get it. But I don't know. I don't know when. I think it's said there'll be in such advice in the next few months. So fingers crossed that soon.
0: Could do with a makeover, back in Palace, I think there's a job for you there, mate. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to. If, if uh, anyone's <laughs> no listening, uh, then, then yeah, I'd be up for the job. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the new London Fabulous was Adam Nathaniel Furman, who's been on this show, who coined the expression in an interview with yeah. DZ earlier in the year. Had you considered yourself part of a group before, I wonder? Did you feel co-opted into this? Um, yeah, I think, again,
1: Adam Nathaniel is an incredible artist. And, you know, we have, I've seen him a few times in events or, you know, or exhibitions of ceremonies. Really. so yeah, an artist who I think doing amazing things, but when this new London Fabulous sort of, you know, movement came about, I came across it on the scene. yeah, exactly, for the first time. And I wasn't aware, of I didn't know there's a movement, but I mean, yeah, I mean, nice to be part of a movement. But yeah, I think what he's saying is correct. You know, I think we're in a time now where we all want colour and we want joy in our lives, you know. And I think, yeah, I think I do think I'm part of that movement and that is what I do. I try to bring work that is very celebratory of one's cultures or spaces or trying to give people a sense of belonging. And I think that's the things I really care about within my work because it's something I think, you know, that I had growing up in North London where I grew up a sense of belonging mm. um, and feeling part of a community. So to be part of a movement, yeah, yeah,
0: it's it's, it's great. (laughs) I mean, there are similarities between you and Adam beyond the use of colour, I think. I mean, as you've alluded to, there's a sense of inclusion in what you both do. Adam talks about queer aesthetics and much of your work is a tribute to your Nigerian heritage. I'm quite intrigued because Adam wrote recently an article He was writing about British architecture, but for a profession that likes to congratulate itself about how well-meaning it is, and sees itself as liberal, diverse, open and progressive, British architecture has a serious problem with diversity of pretty much every kind. He went on to add, Even those from different backgrounds, orientations and ethnicities that do manage to break into the profession, even when they manage to rise up the ranks within practices, they're forced to make a Faustian pact with the Janus-faced... It's outwardly liberal, inwardly oppressive, an exclusionary world of architecture in which they're ostensibly welcomed on the implicit understanding that they leave their singularity and uniqueness at the door. Mm. I mean, are those sentiments that you recognize wow. in the design world, but you're also getting involved in architecture now as well, right?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what Adam said is spot on. I think that's a very powerful statement. I think they're all valid points. And I think I can only talk from my experiences. You know, when I started out designing furniture and we got into this kind of design industry, I always felt I had to, you know, I had to sort of change the way I designed or change my design language to fit into a certain kind of criteria or feel like this is how I might be accepted. And I think it took me. I think it was twenty fifteen where I sort of produced my own exhibition. I wrote my own press release and exhibit I did, you know, a show with this this content store called The Shop at Bluebird in Chelsea and put on my own show and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna stop trying to, you know, conform and be accepted and just celebrate who I am, my British Nigerian, because there isn't anything within design that is, you know, is celebrating that. No one's doing it. I feel Sometimes the kind of design industry and architect can be quite stale, too samey. The same architects are sort of getting uh, commissions or designers or, you know, or the same people getting to get the same press. And I understand what it means, you know, when you get to a certain point, you sort of leave, you're at the door and you've got to kind of change or feel like you've got to fit in. And I think that's something I definitely found difficult when I started my own studio. Now I've got a voice and now I can really celebrate what I care about. It's kind of given other people who have similar backgrounds to me the kind of encouragement or the support or strength to kind of speak their truth or really celebrate their identity and sort of what they want to say within architecture, what they want to say within design or fashion. But yeah, what he's saying is totally spot on. It is inclusive. And I think there's so many things that I think ways that, you know, architecture and creative industries can, you know, be inclusive. And I think my example for me was the Color Palace. You know, that, you know, when I was doing the Color Palace with Price for Architects, we had an email from someone who lived, you know, in the area. And his email was that, you know, Sir John Stone is a man of respect and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we feel the Color Palace, you know, is more better off than the Lagos town where it might feed its starving millions, you know? So it's showing how architecture isn't, for me, isn't inclusive. It feels like it's owned by a certain type of person and it's not for everyone.
0: And that's, that's it because i read that quote i think you gave it to the ft originally yeah it was described as the person that wrote to you was a, a prominent public figure it was described in the press yeah you couldn't yeah, tell yeah. us who that public figure might be or give us a clue no no
1: it, <laughs> yeah it was an mp I think at the time we you know we, we didn't want to kind of give that person any. It was an any, MP,
0: right okay
1: any energy or any spotlight because we didn't want it we, we didn't want to detract from what the goal was which was trying to create a space that is inclusive that celebrates culture that's what it was about but you know For me, what I found really powerful about that is that it's really crazy that people feel that they feel a space is just for them or, you know, they feel like that's theirs or no one else can kind of come to that space because it doesn't share their values or ideas, you know, and that's not what London's about. I can go to any place in London, South London or North London and feel like I belong here, you know. So that was, yeah, that was mad that, you know, a space or a temporary structure made him feel uncomfortable and rattled him. That's powerful for me.
0: Do you feel as if you're a role model? And does that add a certain pressure, I wonder, to your work? I think that
1: um, in some ways, yes, I've got no problem with being a role model because one of the biggest things for me is that, you know, I hope to inspire the next generation of kids, young black kids who look like me. And I think that for me is super, super important for me because I, I know where I grew up, you know, and I know how hard it was to say to someone, I want to be an architect and I want to be, but there's no architects who look like me. Like I can't relate to an architect who looks like me apart from, you know, Sir David Ajay, you know, because he's someone who's done it, is a mentor for me and someone who I look up to and someone who's, who's breaking barriers and deconstructing the narrative of what people think architecture should be or what it should look like, you know? I'm 33 and I'm young. I'm still, you know, I like the same things as someone who's 18 likes or someone of all the music I listen to or dressed like someone who's 19 or 20. So I want to be relatable to those young kids who live in a council estate and have big dreams and know, you know what? Yeah, you can be a designer. You can have a studio. You can be an architect. It's possible because I'm doing it, you know. So, yeah, I do think I'm a role model. And yeah, I've got no problem with
0: that at all. Just reeling back on some of our conversation a little bit. Sure. I, mean, I, I remember seeing your student work. You did a piece for Lynn Rose mm. when you university at university, was, uh, which was a product that was meant to fit into their portfolio. And um, I also saw a piece that you showed when you graduated the new designers. And they look solid enough, but they could have been designed by anybody. Mm. So was it difficult to find your voice and to do the kind of work that you're doing now?
1: Totally. It's really interesting you said that, actually, because I was going through... I'm working on a project with a kind of agency at the moment. So basically what I was looking through was looking at my old sketches, which were done, you know, like maybe 14 years ago, and looking at my sketches now. And those sketches there, you can kind of see I'm trying to use hints of colour in my work, which is trying to give you an insight into kind of my life and sort of, you know, my culture and what happens, you know, when, my, when I get out of my house, what happens when I'm in my house, and trying to give you an insight into my kind of cultural background and heritage. But for me, like... I always felt when I was designing that like Milan Metropolitan, I didn't really. I felt like I didn't really have uh, a DNA. There was no, you couldn't say this is Yinka's work because back then we were like referencing artists or designers I had no link or connection with. It was like Picasso. It was I don't know, like the Vitra Design Museum. It was artists like Francis Bacon. I mean, I couldn't relate to them. I mean, I respected their work, but I couldn't see myself in their work. So I always felt like I had to kind of emulate or design to kind of fit into Lena Rose or fit into. You know, new designers, like, because that's what's going to, you know, that's what Hills were like, what Habitat were like, and that's going to be what, you know, the Kisima were like. So I always kind of thought I was designing to fit in, and there was nothing of me in those products. Whereas now, when I design work now, without I even know, you can know that, oh, that's Yinka. That's Yinka's chair. Yinka's had a piece in that. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think now my work has a, it's distinctive now, my work.
0: A signature. I mean, it's a brave thing to do, though, to take that step, to find that voice, right? Mm. Is And I think
1: it came from a place of frustration and just sort of being annoyed. that I couldn't see anyone else that was doing work that I wanted to see in these spaces and telling stories that I could connect with. And I felt that, you know, every year that I went to, you know, I went, I went to London Design Festival or went to a trade show. It was the same stuff I saw every year. It was nothing different. I couldn't connect with the furniture or I couldn't connect with the installations or the designers. It was, that's what it was. And I think consumers now, and I think, you know, people who love art or architecture i think we're very we want more than something that looks pretty we want to connect with it you know we want to be able to sort of see ourselves we want, we want to take something away from that installation or that moment we want to create memories and i think for me <clears throat> i wasn't able to create memories within my old work apart from I remember how hard it was designing that wardrobe that i had to design three wardrobes <laughs> and it was awful do you know what i mean yes, that, was, that was
0: new designers the wardrobe was the new designers piece right
1: that's what it was yeah 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 Yeah, but with the work, I can tell you by looking in my office now, I can tell you every narrative of every chair that's designed and the year and who it's about because it's personal and people will connect with it on a different personal level as well. And I think for me that's important. It's just like looking at a photo of your family 10 years ago. I can remember what I wore and what music was played, how I felt, because, you know, a picture says a thousand words and that's what my work does. It tries to say a
0: thousand words. Initially you made your reputation designing or or hacking really chairs that you you've mm. found i mean the subject of chairs and why designers are obsessed with them has come up quite a few times on this podcast over the last couple of years mm. i mean quite often when i ask people it's to do with the relationship to the body architects like doing them because compared to buildings they're quite quick projects to get done there's a satisfaction in seeing a piece of work complete but your interest in chairs comes from a very different place they're essentially kind of a canvas upon which you draw a narrative right that's right
1: yeah i think for me i started out designing furniture like nearly to 10 11 years ago And I think it started off for me actually being quite a shy designer. I was really shy when I started designing, you know, I think it was 2011 because everyone, I mean, we had people who were mature students, some who were, you know, my age and I hated having crates, like I hated presenting my work. So yeah, I started sort of collecting furniture around London, especially around North London and that came from a place where I was just very shy about kind of, you know, discussing my work. And I think for me, using those chairs was a kind of creative output for me where I could sort of talk about my kind of personal experiences and people that I cared about. So what I would do is I would spend maybe like, I don't know, you know, I remember living in Angel and I took the bus 73 or the bus 43 or the bus 38 and then like around like Holloway and, you know, Upper Street and Angel or going to West London. And on the way back, I would always see a chair. I don't know how or where, just see a chair. And then I would get off the bus, pick it up, take it home, put it in my bedroom because my kitchen was so full with my stuff anyway. And my room just became this kind of, you know, like chair den of just chairs that I collected over the years. What I was doing was taking it to the studio and then trying to, You know, talk about Nigerian parables that I grew up with um, that were about love or, you know, like not being jealous of people or about loving people or about, you know, respect and those kind of themes. So what I wanted to try and do is bringing in these narratives into everyday objects that we see, but kind of use the chair as a form of my identity, as an extension of me um, within this piece that is kind of talking about personal issues and personal values that I really care about and experiences that I've experienced with people or loved ones. So what I would try and do is kind of create these objects that are not functional, but sculptural, leave it in a public space like an exhibition that I might have you know been involved in and then walk away from it. And it's always been quite nice to kind of see people's reactions to my chairs. And one of the things that they do is that people always smile when they see my work. And that's the third thing I want to try and do is get a smile from you that you don't even know you're doing it. You're just kind of smiling. And I think that's really powerful because it's really powerful that an object can make you react in a way that you're not in control of because you're you're not thinking about it. You're just doing it. And I think a lot of design objects or Architectural spaces don't do that. Don't invoke that feeling of happiness or joy. You know what I mean. And I think for me, like that was the first time I really understood the power of color and storytelling within design and what emotion it evokes from that person that's experiencing your work. So yeah, that's how it started. It started up as a canvas for me to celebrate my culture and celebrate people that I grew up with. You
0: know, um during my teens, and I don't like. Yeah, there's a nice quote from you where you say, "I kind of see chairs as people." Yeah. Can we take a, maybe a person that you talked about and how that manifested itself in a chair?
1: Sure, yeah. So there was a piece that I did a couple of years ago, um, it was in 2015, called A Trapped Star, which has now had been acquired by the Brighton Museum I think, in 2015. Um, and that piece in particular is actually, if you look at it, there's like there's a kid's chair and um, a, really, a big chair, a sort of captain's chair, what you kind of find in pubs. And what I've done with that chair is I've kind of combined those two chairs together. So if you look at it closely... You can see this small chair, which has been attached on top of the captain's chair. And the reason why it's called a chap's style was because there was two brothers that I grew up with, um, St. Aloysius, and they, they don't know who they are. The brothers <laughs> could be any brothers. So if you are listening, I'm not going to say who they are. The younger brother who was in my year was extremely talented. You know, One was a good football player. Two was also you know, good at music. And just three, just good in all lessons, like maths, English, science. Maths, he was just so intelligent. But you know, his older brother, who was, you know, a year above us, was extremely disruptive, was, you know, was selling drugs and, you know, was just not doing things that were positive. And what was really sad was that, you know, you, you know, you have friends or people where you feel like this person's actually really intelligent. If only you knew his full potential. And if someone told him, listen, you're really intelligent, you've got a bright future ahead of you. You don't need to do all that stuff. Just forget about it. It's not for you. But, you know, you end up sometimes following your brother's footsteps and going down the wrong path. And that's what happened to him. You know, he went and his brother's footpath and ended up, you know, selling drugs and going to jail, you know, to kind of, in which I, you know, I don't judge anyone who wants to kind of, you know, needs to kind of get by. But, you know, if you know someone's super intelligent, you don't need to go down that route. And, you know, I've seen lots of friends, you know, do that because they want to be like their brother and, and you know, live that lifestyle. But in the long run, it doesn't serve you, you know. It was about that, you know, that particular person. Um, what I always try and do is I always try to find the beauty in that situation or people because I think there's beauty in, in all of us, um, believe it or not, maybe not Don Trump. But I think we all do have beauty in
0: all of us. Right. Well, even his kids love
1: him. Do you know what I mean? You know, and, and, and that's it. So I think that with everything I do, there's always a kind of narrative behind it, but there's always a beautiful sort of sentiment and story that comes out of it that I will try and share with you. Whether you can experience it through a smile, that's fine. Or if you want to go deeper and discuss the narrative and break down a parable, then yeah, I'm, I'm open to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, like a number of people, I first came across your pieces when you were working with the Restoration Project, which is a charity yep. in East London that brings people together in difficult circumstances to restore furniture. Mm. And um, the immediate thing that struck me, obviously, was your use of colour. Mm. Can we talk a bit about your relationship with colour and where that comes from and, yeah. and how you use it? Yeah, I think my relationship with colour comes from my upbringing,
1: my family. And I think one of the things to me that I've always respected and loved about my family was they've been here for like nearly sort of 35, I think like 35, 36 years. And they sort of left Nigeria, moved to the UK... I want to sort of give us a, a different upbringing, you know, a different life, different opportunities. And, you know, I think for someone to kind of be so selfless and, and give up everything because they want to give, you know, their unborn children, you know, a different perspective, you know, a sort of different life, I think is is incredible. And something I don't think I can do. I don't think I could leave the country and start again and leave my family, my friends. It's tough, you know, it sounds, yeah, it sounds mad, but they did it. And so did some of their friends as well. But I think for me, like, one of the things I saw about them is that they... They had a bunch of friends who kind of did the same thing as them and who were from Nigeria, moved to the UK. And what they did was that they had lots of parties, lots of, you know, they had lots of kind of key special occasions with people who had the same kind of, you know, culture as them. i seen
0: you talk about it. They filmed their parties and watched
1: them back. Yes, they would film it. It's true. <laughs> no, 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 that's true. It's true. What we would do, like, for example, sometimes we would have, you know, I lived in a, in a place called Essex Road in a two-bedroom flat and it was really, it was, our living room was tiny. So... But then we would have my uncle come round, you know, who was a, you know, a performer called Obalola. He's like a, yeah, he's a musician. Um, and what he would do was he would bring his keyboard around to the house with his microphone and he would play his keyboard with his kind of like um, his sound system in our living room and have it full blast. And it was a block party. Everyone was invited. You know, you could be from a luxury of my family coming to our house. It would go on into our kitchen, our bedroom, our bathroom. Everyone filled all the spaces because it was such an inclusive, you know, like party that you were all invited. So for me, what I remember about this party was what my friends and parents wore mm. to these parties. It was colourful Swiss lace from, you know, Dubai, from Switzerland, you know, gold, 24 karat gold, 18 carat gold from Dubai. So it was this kind of showcase of, you know, of one of one of culture, but also showcase kind of show who has the most money. But then also it gave them a sense of belonging. It gave them this kind of family community. So they didn't really feel like they were missing home. And that's for me what was really special about those parties and why colour is such a big part of my practice because it, I can remember key moments that I experienced as a kid and still relive them through my work and through public spaces.
0: Your father was a manager at b I think. Yeah. Your mum, I mean, there's various professions that are mentioned in her various clippings. She was either a professional cook, she worked in shop or she was a hairdresser or was she all three? Yep. All three. She was, okay. Let me tell you.
1: So my dad, when he's in Nigeria, he works in printing. Right. And then he's, he was also in marketing as well. And uh, my mom works in hospitality in a hotel in Nigeria. So when she left Nigeria, came to London, all Nigerians, they are hustlers. They are hardworking <laughs> people who, you know, are very ambitious people. And I think that is something I sometimes find hard is that I'm sometimes too ambitious and sometimes put pressure on myself to kind of do so many different things. And I think that comes from my mom and dad. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have that kind of pressure of ambition sometimes because it's sometimes too much. But My mum, yes, she was a hairdresser, went to study hairdressing and she had people come around to the house and she would, you know, like do your hair. Um, And that was her job. She also got her diploma in um, food hygiene. She's got a certificate in that. So she was also a caterer. And I remember actually when my mum was pregnant with my brother, my mum left her job. I think she was working in retail at the time. Left her job. And then my mum and dad decided to open up a a supermarket in uh, Foolsbourne Road called star supermarket so i was quite a popular kid when i, was when I was in <laughs> primary school because i had a sweet shop and all my mates came to my sweet shop after school and would congregate in my mum's shop and they would get snickers and twigs and whatever because it was my shop so yeah you know they did so many different things because they wanted to just be successful and you know give i don't know
0: just sort of show
1: us that hard work you know is
0: important yeah yeah you know did they ever talk to you about what it was like coming over here to begin with i'm old enough to remember the late 70s and early 80s, and there were riots mm. in Brixton in 81. Mm. I mean, you get periodic flourishes of fascism in this country, and there's one during that period. Mm. It's incredible to think now, but mm. our leading tennis player at the time was a character called Buster Mottram, who expressed sympathy for the National Front. Economically, we are in the doldrums. I mean, it wasn't a happy place. I wonder, did they ever talk about how they found it when they arrived? Wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's a good question, actually, because it's something that my parents have never spoke to me about before. Maybe they speak about it briefly, but never to to, to, to an extent where... You know, I was quite emotional when my mum told me, you know, what she, what one of the things she experienced out of so many. And I think it, we discussed it when it was, you know, during sort of BLM last year um, and George Floyd. And it was basically when my mum was pregnant with my older brother and they had seen this flat online they were going to go and view. And it was in Stoke Newington. So they went down to Stoke Newington with my dad and my mum and my brother who was at the time in my mum's room, And they got to the door and they said, oh, sorry, you know, no blacks allowed. You know, we're not, you know, we can't chronic black people. And I, when, when she told her, I, I, I cried because I thought, bloody hell! You know, like you've come to this country with, you've left home, and you think this is going to be a loving place. It's going to be kind people, and and then you, you're here, and you're like, well, it's not actually what it seems. You know, like there's actually a problem here, and you're pregnant with, you, you know, with with your unborn child, and you've got, you know, you're trying to find somewhere to stay, and you've been told you can't come in because you can't rub your skin. It's crazy, you know, <clears throat> and yeah, really broke my heart. So yeah we sometimes do talk about those you know talk about those tough times and things that they experience, but one thing they've always said to us, yeah you know you've always got to work ten times harder, and I think what they've always tried to do is never let that get us down or never let that be a you know an obstacle for us because they've always said to us, you know you're hardworking people and you know you're talented, and you know just just keep working hard and you know your time will come, so they've never really made us feel like we should be angry or we should you know seek revenge or no, never, never that, never. It's always just been like, you know, the, the thing about me is that I grew up in a really loving household. So for me, I don't really care about what was happening outside. I think for me, like all I cared about was just having my parents' love and affection and care. And that's all I cared about. I didn't care about because my, my parents' opinions, is, is, that, that's what i of the one that matters. I don't care about other people's opinions. That's the biggest thing for me is knowing that I've got my parents' unconditional love. And, and that's what's got me through everything, if I'm honest with you.
0: You said once in a talk you were jealous of your parents. Why was that?
1: yeah jealous jealous yeah it's true um and i think the reason why i'm jealous is because you know they've always kind of given us so much insight into kind of their upbringing and their culture and what it's like to be you know like nigerian and fully nigerian yes you know they, they're with their british so have you know they have you know a british british passport but you know they, they haven't got to worry about having two cultures they're born in nigeria so there's no kind of like division or not division or is but more like understanding like what it's like to kind of grow up in nigeria and understand like that kind of yearning of wanting to go back home because they, they want to go back home. But I don't know what it feels like to want to go back home. I know like it's sunny and it's great food and you know, it's amazing, but you know, like I'm born here and I think when you have such strong memories of a place that you've known your whole life and you want to kind of get into your parents and understand like unpick their memories and understand what it was like when you were sitting with your dad or like, or my granddad, like I don't get a chance to sort of meet my granddad. I never met him before. And all I've got is images of him, you know what I mean? So there's so many things like that, like, for me, are quite tough. Or my grandmother, I only met her twice. And people who live here, are born here, get, you know, they have, they can say grandmother down the road. But, I, I, you know, things I missed out on, like, I want to have a nice link with my grandparents or cousins. I, I don't have that. So there is that element of, like, jealousies and, like, oh, I wish I kind of, you guys didn't have to, you know, like, feel like you got to kind of, you're in between kind of two cultures or choose. Because... For me, when I grew up in North London, at home I was Nigerian. Inside I had Nigerian food. I spoke the language. My parents didn't speak to us in English, really. It was in Yoruba. When I went out, I'm British. I'm English. You know? You all right, mate? Yeah, what's happening? And then you're at home. It's Yoruba. So that was, for me as a kid, that's, that's quite tough, you know? And your parents are like, yeah, you know, you're born in the UK, but you know, you're still Nigerian. I'm like, all right, yeah, okay. Fine, <laughs> you know, you can't. So but it's only t- as I got older, I was like, this is actually like, really special. Like, there's people who would love to have two cultures. And now I want to celebrate those cultures and really you know, talk about it and discuss it in my work. Because I think years ago, like, people weren't celebrating culture, you know, like West African cultures. You know, like, in general, the continent, we weren't celebrating black culture or you know, like, black people. And I think for me, it's really important to kind of catch up and lost time you know, and like, really celebrate it as much as I can. And that's what I'm doing yeah, now. Yeah.
0: Your parents wanted you to be an engineer rather than a designer and you enrolled at South Bank to study initially, you realised pretty quickly it wasn't for you. Yeah, yeah, bloody hell, that was...
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was really funny, yeah. So, you know, lots of Nigerian households, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or a scientist or whatever it is, anything that's, like, really academic or that's going to bring pride to the family. And, yeah, I decided that I didn't want to be a civil engineer because I couldn't really see myself you know I was really young and age but couldn't see myself wearing a high biz jacket and a hard hat and being surrounded by rubble and (laughs) you know like and scaffolding and being cold and I was like no, I don't want to do that. And then um, I remember actually going on to study. I was actually enrolled. I think I was on the course for like one day, and I was like, "This is not for me. Like, I can't see myself doing this." And I enrolled on. I did a course which is called Art and Design Studies um in Art and Design for a year. It's just BTEC, and you kind of do like everything within Art and Design, from like fine art, to photography, to product design, furniture. And I did that. Where, from, where was this? Um, London Metropolitan University. Okay. And I did that, and that was great. And that's when I worked out. Oh, you know, I'm actually quite good at making furniture, and I went on to go and study. Um, a degree in product design and furniture at London Met and it's been the best thing I've ever done because I think if I would have gone on to have done civil engineering I don't know if, I'd have, if I would have been happy but funny enough now I, I get to work with civil engineers now anyway you know so it's all kind of come around you know full circle so do you tell them about your 24 hours worth of experience no no I don't want <laughs> to no I want to keep them on my side you know because they are very important <laughs> people in all my projects <laughs>
0: So when did the penny drop for you at London Met, I wonder? You were taught by Jane Etfield, I think, right? That's right. Who was big in the... I mean, she designed for people. She's a name that kind of gets... Has got slightly forgotten, but in the mid-90s... I agree. She made an extraordinary and revolutionary chair, made out of recycled plastic. Yeah, yeah. So when was the moment when you went, this is the work I want to do? I mean, obviously, you're still trying to do other things when you graduated from new designers.
1: Sure, totally. I think... It's a shame, actually, because I wish I could speak to Jane Atfield. I don't know. Maybe I should try and reach out or try and find her. But if you are listening to Jane Atfield, yeah, please email me. All right, yeah, I'd love to chat to you. But I think when I was in my first year, you get given a bunch of projects. Like, you know, they're really trying to do, you're just experiencing different kinds of projects. But she gave me a project that was called Our Chair. And that project changed my life. And the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today was because of Jane Atfield and that project she gave us. And that project that we did, was basically we had to go and... I think it was first kind of, in, you know, done by Martino Gamper when he did this project called 100 Chairs in 100 Days, where he went off and went to go and find, you know, like, different unreloved, like, old chairs, and he sort of, like, reloved them and sort of, like, gave them a, like, new narrative and new kind of form and structure, and he did it for 100 days. So Shane gave us that brief and said, OK, this is someone you should look out for. This is what he's done. You're going to now attempt it yourself as well. Go and find two chairs and work with someone on your course and, you know redesign this chair it was the best thing ever that i've ever done on i think during my whole three years at london metropolitan that was my favorite project and that's what gave me the kind of encouragement to go and do that when i finished university to go and start recycling old chairs and old furniture but then at the time i know that she did this recycled chair using recycled plastic and i think it's actually at the DNA. i think it is actually we didn't really know how like important jane was i think at the time because i think jane was part-time but you're right i think she's uh Incredible, and I think someone I think you know doesn't probably get the credit I think she deserves I think is yeah, is a bit is a bit forgotten. But I think that project did change my life, and I think I'm um, yeah, forever grateful because I think that project for me opened my eyes, and I think that was the first time I thought there is storytelling within design, and that was how I started storytelling was actually doing that project called Our Chair Because the reason why I think it was really powerful because those two chairs that I actually got was from two different places and two different people who lived two completely different lives, which is really powerful. So that chair, as man as it sounds, as 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 seen or as I was experienced, different things or people or has been in two different environments. And we're now taking those two chairs, who you know have come from two different people's lives, and giving it a new narrative and maybe not forgetting those existing narratives or existing stories, but giving it a new story that will now be at the forefront. So. That was the first time I actually understood the power of storytelling within design.
0: Mm. Mm. After graduation, your rise you know, has appeared quite seamless. You did a three-month internship with the designer Lee Broom. I mean, he started his career yeah. by hacking chairs with strips of fluorescent lights, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. What did you learn from, from Lee? Your work would appear to be quite different.
1: Yeah, I think, if I wanted to you, I emailed a bunch of different people trying to but no one was getting back to me and I had interviews and I was unsuccessful with the interviews. But Lee Broom was the only person who, yeah, who gave me my first internship. I was with Lee Broom for, I think, for like maybe sort think two or three months. And at the time he was working on a project in Westfield, this Lebanese restaurant called Manalown. I, you know, got an insight into sort of how you sort of start a project from start to finish. And I remember going into this restaurant, which was an empty space, but understanding what it is to kind of, you know, buy furniture, like designer space, like site visiting, for example. I don't know, like, just kind of like creating mood boards, those kind of things. And also just kind of managing the project, I think, is things that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to do at the time. But I think I wanted to try and get an insight into kind of running a studio so I could potentially do my own studio in the future. But his work, I think he was one of the designers at the time who really excited me because he was doing things that no one was doing. He did this table that was made that he kind of had this, I think it was this kind of plywood outer surface. And then the inside had this kind of like Perugian kind of carpet that he inlaid in the inside. And I was like, that's crazy because no one was doing that. So I think for me, he was one of the, one of the people that I think was a cross between kind of functional design and art, but also unfunctional art and design. I think he was one of the people where I thought, wow, I want to learn from him. I want to, you know, work for him and just understand how he thinks and what's his thought process because his work was incredible. And then he was doing lighting, he was always doing these things called decanter lights where he was getting these secondhand lights and then sort of putting light bulbs into them and sort of selling them. And then, yeah, I mean, those lights, they've done extremely well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a quote from you that I read in Design Week. You said it was around 2015 that you were having thoughts of giving up design mm. due to the frustration of feeling people didn't understand the designer I wanted to be. Mm. Um, who didn't understand, I wonder?
1: It was, I think it was like you know, press people. I think it was design peers didn't understand sort of where i like to position me. I can only kind of relate it to when you have an artist, for example, who is, let's say, I don't know, who does country music, for example, and you know, he's now signed to a music label. And they can't work out where to position him, position her. Like, where does this sit? And then they start doing, they go up the country and they start doing, I don't know, rap music. And it's like, they're confused. They don't know how to market this person. And I think that's really what it was to me because no one at the time was kind of talking about storytelling or talking about British Nigerian heritage, talking about colour, talking about Nigerian folklore. It was all very new to people. And I think no one understood what it was I was doing or is am I an artist or is he a designer? You know, I think for me, I was struggling because I didn't really feel like for me to do a trade show was the right thing because I wasn't selling mass-produced products that you could have in a hotel or in your house. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't creating work for mass production. I was creating work that was meaningful, was one-off piece, and was more, you know, in line with, let's say, I don't know, like an art exhibition that's maybe at Freeze or Art Basel or Design Miami. And that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to get into that type of space. So I found myself a little bit confused and then doing, you know, like, waiting every year, once a year, to do, you know, LDF, which was fine, and I think, you know, did, I think, serve this purpose at the time, but I think, it, I think for me, it came to a point where I felt like I was wasting my money, you know, standing at a, paying X amount of money for space to exhibit my work, and waiting for retailers or buyers to come by and be like, oh, you know, we love that we're over 50. It didn't work for me, you know? And I get a lot of up-and-coming creators now asking me, what are your thoughts on doing trade shows? Are they beneficial? Yes, they are beneficial for the first or second year, but after some time, If I wanted to view, it is a huge investment and, you know, you could end up not even getting nothing from it, you know, but something I knew and I was prepared to do, but I think for my advice to anyone up and coming or wanting to get into the creative industry and you want you're doing, I don't know, furniture, whatever it is you're doing, do it for one or two years, but maybe it's best to kind of do your own show. If you've got the money, if you spend about a thousand pounds on a space that's the size of a box, just get as high your your, your own space with some mates and, you know, write your own press release. Find ten pure or ten blogs or people design milk or it might be oh, decoration. Find the people who write the press releases. Email them your press release and do it that way. That's what I recommend and what I would advise anyone up and coming to do that.
0: Well, we're going to have a lot of empty retail space in the next uh, yes, two years, we are. so um, there will be opportunities. There's mm. absolutely no question. Is it true that you did your market research for initial designs by setting up a table on Tottenham Court Road mm. and asking passers-by what they thought of your sketches?
1: That's true. I did that, yeah. So it's, it's bonkers. So at the time, before I started designing furniture, when I finished university, my dad bought me some tools from B&Q, and he was manager at the one in um, Leightonstone, and he bought me a table saw, you know, a saw, a chisel, everything. So I was, remember I was making my first collection of, you know, on uh, my sort of garden table in Archway on a sunny day, and I was also trying to apply for some funding from the Prince's Trust. And I got a loan out from them, I think it was like three and a half thousand pounds to start my business. So, you know, if you know about the Prince's Trust and that works, it's like, go on Dragon's Den. You write a business plan, you pitch to them. They say, yes, we'll offer you the money. I got the money, which really did, you know, help me um, kick off my business. So one of the things in order for me to kind of get the money was to kind of go and do some market research. And, you know, to present to the panel and say, okay, what have you done? I was like, okay, I've done some market research. I've gone to Habitat and Hills. I've gone outside there. I've got a printout of all my products with a questionnaire. And at the time, I don't know if it's, it's quite a bit ballsy, now, actually, to go outside to someone like Habitat Hills and do that. I don't know if I'd do it now, though, um, because I'm at, in, a, in a way I'm, I'm a competitor, <laughs> isn't it? It's like it's like it's like Vitra going outside, or it's like Hem or Hay going outside Habitat and trying to, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's a bit cheeky of me, but I, you know, I was a cheeky kid, but I did it. I did it. Um, and I was asking, you know, passers by who were going into Habitat and Hills. So before they went into the shop, I'll be like, excuse me, can you just do this questionnaire for me? And I'll be, I'm an up, up and coming designer. I want to launch these products. What are your thoughts on this table and chairs and this dining set? What do you think? And they would look at him like, Yep, yeah, love that. Don't like that. That could be changing. And that was it really. And that gave me an insight into kind of, you know, what type of design I should be doing based on this feedback from the customers so yeah i did that yeah like i think a couple of years after i finished university I, I sort of spent some time outside habitat nails doing some
0: research yeah <laughs> you set up your studio in the shape that it is now in 2017 mm. how many people are you employing now, Yinka? you have a business right that's right
1: yeah so i think i think one of the things that people get sort of confused is you know i think you know i started my studio in 2011 on my own and I think, you know, there's so much you can do in terms of growth and, you know, you can't take on big projects and you can't do it on your own. You've got to get a team in. So in 2017, when I was pitching for a project in Battersea, one I've done now called Happy Street, that's when I decided to kind of grow my team and get people in to kind of help me do projects that are ambitious, but also try and do projects that I can't get with just my own. But now the studio consists of there is a I have a, an assistant studio studio manager who's been here for a few months now um, and she kind of runs a day to day of the studio. Yeah, helps me with you know like my data to emails and you know my scheduling that kind of thing. We have um, three architects, part twos and we're hiring for a part three now. We also have a graphic designer who works with us on a freelance basis. Who's worked extensively on the Homeware collection. And then yeah, got my younger brother who's been in the studio helping me. He's been like the kind of deliver, not the kind of. He's the man doing all the kind of packing and all the for the Homeware collection. So what, what is that? Six people. Seven, six, six people right now, which is crazy. I, I don't want to get any bigger than that. It's, um, I'm going to lie, it's stressful managing people and managing a team. It's tough. It's tough. So I think I'm going to cap it at six, fingers crossed, and not get any other ambitious anymore. And that's it.
0: <laughs> and when you did that, your work seemed to change scale. There was a playground installation for Pinterest at the Canned Lion International Festival of Creativity, big installation at Somerset House, an installation under a bridge at Thessaly Road in Battersea yeah. called Happy Street. And of course the colour palace that we've kind of touched yeah. on. Was this part of a plan to get bigger, to stop doing chairs, to do bigger projects?
1: It wasn't part of a Yeah, it was actually. It was. It was, I'm honest with you. I think I got quite bored of doing um like small scale installations and I got, you know, quite frustrated that this, you know, if I did a piece with someone or a commission, it's gonna be in a gallery space and not everyone feels comfortable going to gallery spaces because, you know, I felt that these spaces sometimes are not inclusive or don't for me don't really you know allow make people feel like oh i belong here or I or i can go to i don't know let's say the V&A or the breach museum you know you know what i mean and these are places i thought i couldn't go to as a kid myself so you know and my parents had never really been to a museum i think it was their first time going to one with me at the dalek picture gallery if i'm honest with you and that's we didn't really discuss you know those kind of things at home so that was for me quite a special moment that you know they've been here for so long but never felt that they could go into Spaces like those, because I'm sure there'd be so many things that they could relate to, or things they might, you know, be able to kind of be like, oh, that that's interesting, or that something, you know, that they've seen in Nigeria. Uh, you know, I don't know, um, but I think for me, like, yeah, it was always part of the plan to do larger scale projects, and I think having done you know, the Road Bridge in Battersea and doing Colour Palace in the same year was crazy because I, I won those both the same year, and yeah, it was super exciting. I think those projects have really opened huge amounts of doors for me because now we've got those two projects under our belt. And now when people come to us for more projects on larger scales, yeah, which is always part of the plan because I've always always had ambitions and goals of creating, you know, inclusive spaces um, that, you know, in communities that don't have access to art or places that maybe might feel forgotten. And giving them something to kind of feel proud of and be like, you know what, you're coming to my estate, or you're coming to my neck of the woods because I've got the Colour Palace or I've got, or I've got um, you know, Happy Street in Battersea. Do you know what I mean? So it's trying to create monumental and, and places of destination that people travel to go and see.
0: Going back to the, the Colour Palace for a, a moment, uh, it kind of got compared to the annual Serpentine Pavilion by critics. I mean, were you aware of that? And did you feel in competition? I mean, if I'm going to
1: say no, I'll be lying to you. Because, you know, we did. <laughs> there was some discussion with people in the team and, you know, Price Score as well. We You know, we spoke about it. But I think we left, we didn't, we left it to the critics, really. I mean, it wasn't up to us, you know, to sort of say, you no. Know, because I mean, at the time there was lots of negative press, you know, with the Serpentine Pavilion, and also with you know the piece that was done by I his name now. What's what was artist's like, name? Uh, Junior Ishigami. Yeah, yeah. But you know, at the time there was there was lots of negative press about you know what he'd installed, and people compared it and said, oh, the, the color press was was better. I didn't say that's what the critics said, but I don't know. Really, I think over the years I, I don't know. I don't really care what critics think anymore. I just, <laughs> I just do me, you know. I just got, you know I don't think yeah, yeah. Everyone's got you know has got an opinion now, but I don't really
0: watch what critics say or. I mean, should I care what critics think? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I wouldn't, but I wonder, because that dovetails with the question I was about to ask, which is, you know, when you're doing these bigger public projects, mm. do you get a different type of criticism than when you're doing furniture, I wonder?
1: No, not really, no, no. The only thing that I find frustrating, maybe it's, it's because I think sometimes when we do, and I think it's probably it's probably it's my fault, you know, because I'm really good at colour and good at pattern. I think sometimes people forget that I'm a designer and I design spaces and, you know, if I've designed a skate park, but the first thing they ask me is, "Oh, did you just do the colours? Did you?" I'm like, "No, I, I designed the scape. I designed it and the colours too." Um, or, you know, you've designed the colour palette, and you're, know, "Oh, with price score." Oh, did you just do the colours? No, we sat mm. down together. I you know, it was a collaborative process. So that, for me, I think is sometimes frustrating. But I think now I'm becoming quite vocal about it and just saying, you know what? Yes, you remember I've studied product design and furniture. I've gone. I've done it. You know, for three years. Like, give me some credit. But also. I love using colour, but I think sometimes I think you know you can't blame people. I think the first thing you see is is the colour. If you saw a building that was just grey, then it would be more like, wow, that's an interesting building. You know, wow, look at the look at the shapes, the the kind of but when it's the colour, that's the first thing you see is like, wow, this is mind blowing. And I think that's what I did set up to do actually from one you, like was to kind of capture an instant response from you from how I use colour. And that's what I want to try and create, is try to evoke an emotion that is very much unplanned and just like on the spot like joy with glee like wow
0: that's bonkers that's me happy you know our time is up yinka final question plans for the future what can we expect from you more homeware by the sound of it
1: more homeware i am doing my first i've got two big public commissions that will be launching this year one of the biggest ones i think they're both important but i think the one i'm really excited for right now because i've done a few playgrounds is i'm doing a permanent playground in east london in embarking ah. so look out for that yeah it's gonna be permanent there forever um so that I'm super like excited for. So can't wait for that to kick off this year. Very
0: good. Very good. Well that's a lovely uplifting place to leave it. it. Thank you so much for your time, Yinka. really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to discover more about Yinka's work, go to yinkailauri.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from and it would make me really happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.